beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember from a few weeks ago, when we dealt with Lord's Day 7, what faith is. Faith involves knowing things. But more than that, faith involves knowing things to be true. But more than that, faith involves taking these things that we know and that we know to be true and trusting that we can live by them, that we can depend on them with our lives. We could use an example of a building, a very high building, which is burning, and we're on the roof, and there's no way down. And sometimes, I don't think they use them anymore, but in the olden days, they used to use these great big nets that the firemen would hold, and they would say, jump, jump, and you could jump into the net to try and save your life. I think now they use ladder trucks. But imagine we're back in those days when they didn't have ladder trucks yet, and we're on the, the top of the building. Now, somebody can come up to us and say, the building's on fire. The firemen down below have a net. If you jump into it, you will save your life. And we can say, that's interesting. I know that you said that. But if we stop there, we're going to burn, right? Maybe we can say to the person, you told me that the building is on fire, that I'm going to die, and if, if I want to save myself, I have to jump down into the net, and I know there's a net down there, and I know that to be true. That's true. Yes, it's so true. And then we just sit there and do nothing. Is that going to get us anywhere? Is that going to save us? No, we have to act on what we know to be true. And we have to trust in that which we know to be true. We have to take a running jump and fly over the edge of that roof and land, hopefully, in the, the net being held by the firemen. That's more or less how faith works. It's not just knowing about God and who God is and what God has done. It's not just knowing about God and who God is and what he has done and knowing that it's true. But it's knowing God. It's knowing the mighty deeds of redemption that God has done, knowing them to be true, and knowing that they are true for us. That we not only can, but that we must live by them. So faith then is faith not in an arcane body of knowledge. When God returns in the clouds of heaven, he will not arrange a celestial exam room with lots of desks and examination papers where we all have to fill out the right theology. That's not what's going to happen. Faith is also not holding on to a collection of traditions and customs or a certain ethic, as good as they may be. But faith is holding on to and trusting someone. And that's what our creed says. I believe in God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, and in God, the Holy Spirit. I believe. Now, if you look at 
Question answer 23, which is on the same page as our Lord's Day today. You notice there's a difference in the creed. The first article, I believe in God. The second article, I believe in Jesus Christ. The eighth article, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Did you notice number nine? I believe a holy Catholic Christian church. It doesn't say I believe in. We don't believe in the church. We believe the church to be a work of the Holy Spirit, the Word and the Spirit of God, but we only believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in God as He reveals Himself. So you remember from Lord's Day 7 that all humans are united to the first Adam in his sin and his fall, and therefore all humans die in Adam. How are we connected to the first Adam? You just need to be born, and that's how we're connected to the first Adam. And you remember, too, that those who are united to Christ, the last Adam, they live. They're saved. Those who are united to the last Adam in his death and resurrection have salvation. How are we united to him? Well, we learned that in Lord's Day 7, by faith, by believing. So faith is knowing and trusting God. Faith is not necessarily understanding God. Sometimes God reveals things about who he is and what he has done, and we don't understand them. They're hard for us to process. Perhaps they go beyond our mental capacity to, to figure out what, it, what, what, he, what he means. So faith doesn't mean to say we understand God totally. Faith doesn't mean that we can put God under a microscope and figure out everything about him and what he has done. Because if that was the case, then he wouldn't be God, would he? If he was small enough for us to study exhaustively. Faith is also not demanding that God fits my profile of what God should be like. Sometimes you talk to someone and you, you're you're sharing with them what the scripture says about God, and they say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't like what you just said. My God isn't like that. Well, who your God isn't, is, isn't really important, is it? It's who the true God who reveals himself in his word, who he is. That's what's important. And sometimes people are even more brazen. They say, well, okay, fine. The Bible says God is like that. I'll accept that, but you know what? If that's who God is, I don't want him. Sometimes we run into people that say that. But those who have faith, those who believe, accept God at his word, trust his promises, and worship him for his mighty acts. So the question before us today, this afternoon, is not just a theological lecture about the Trinity. The question that comes to you from the Holy Spirit himself today is this. Do you know God? Do you know him, Father, Son, and Spirit? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Because the content of the Christian faith is that, to know, to love, 
and to trust God. And our Lord's Day explains that the summary of the Christian faith that we have in the Creed is divided exactly along the lines of the three persons of the Trinity. The Father in our creation, the Son in our redemption, the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Let's think about that for a while. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We confess that we know, love, and trust for our salvation. The one who the psalmist says in Psalm 139 has been intimately involved in our lives ever since the first moments of our existence. He is the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. He is the one, according to the apostle, in whom we live and move and have our being. The only reason we can talk and think and move is because we talk and think and move and live and exist in the life which God is extending to us at every moment. So if we know and we love and we trust this God who reveals himself as the creator and as the sustainer of the universe, that means, amongst many other things, it means that we trust his creative purposes. It means that in a world which is more and more thoroughly confused about all of the basics of the creation, we go back to his revelation. And when there are questions about gender and sexuality and marriage and divorce and the role of men and women, sometimes they're not abstract or political or or questions out there. Sometimes they're questions that some of us struggle with very deeply. Then we don't go to the God within. We don't go to how do I feel and how do I think and what is good for me. We go to his revelation, and we believe what he says about how he has ordained things. It also means that we trust him. We trust his sovereign will, that we trust his guidance, that we trust his providence. When I say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, That means that I believe that not a sparrow falls from the bush without his heavenly will. Not a hair falls from my head without his heavenly will. Not a light turns red just at the wrong time without his heavenly will. So even in the little details of life, how we react and how we respond will show ourselves and others if we really do believe or not. God made you. God made the world you live in. That means that you belong to him. And that means that everything that you are and everything that you have, it means that every aspect of your existence, it means that every cell in your body has only one purpose, and that is to praise and to glorify and adore your creator. And when people don't do what they were made to do, they're unhappy. That's why there's so much unhappiness in this world. If you use something for the wrong purpose, then often you get grief. If I want to hang a picture in the house, and I take a nail and I can't find a hammer, so I take my wife's crystal vase from the table and try to hammer that nail onto the wall, 
I'm not going to get the, well, maybe I'll get the nail into the wall a little bit, but the vase is probably going to break. It's not what it's for, is it? There's going to be grief, and I'm going to get grief with my wife. And when a human being who was created to worship and adore the Creator, to live for Him, to glorify Him in every moment, when a human being doesn't do that, then he or she is most desperately and profoundly and deeply unhappy. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. And the, and the, the creed works through the, the conception and the birth and the life, the suffering, the crucifixion, the, the burial, the ascension, and the session or the sitting at the right hand of God of our Savior. So we know Him. And if we know His works... And if we believe and if we trust in the power of his conception and birth and suffering and death and resurrection and ascension and his session, and if we trust in the power of his blood, the efficacy of his sacrifice to, to wash away our sins, if we know who he is, if we know what he has done, not just kind of as some theological insights, but as something which changes the way I live, because he did it for me. Changes the way I think. Then we say with Paul, I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we really, when we really know and believe in the person and the work of Christ, that we have an overwhelming desire not just to rejoice in that cleansing, in that redemption, and to live out of the power of it, but we have an overwhelming desire to see other sinners cleansed and washed as well in his blood. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, and the last section of the creed talks about the, the personal work of the Spirit, that he through the word, gathers a holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints. He administers to us all the benefits of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. He uh, is instrumental in the resurrection of the body and giving us life everlasting. And again, it's important. True faith doesn't just know about the Spirit. True faith knows Him. In the way that a wife knows her husband, loves him deeply. Very personal, intimate communion between the believer and the Spirit. Because it's through him that we get to access all the riches of Christ. And it's in his power that we can be sanctified, that in the first place we can mortify or put to death the old nature, and in the second place we can be more and more renewed to newness of life. So we love him because we love what he does. And more and more, when we look around us, we see people, and sometimes even reformed people, saying, I, I, I want to see more of the Spirit. Why don't we have more of the power of the Spirit? And what they mean is, is the fireworks and the thunder and the lightning and, and the cool stuff. And often what's forgotten 
is that the most glorious and powerful work of the Spirit is that he takes dead sinners and makes them into living children of God. That he takes a valley full of bones and makes them into living and worshiping creatures. That he takes a heart which is heart, uh, a heart which is hard, and makes it into a heart which loves the Lord Jesus. And so when we know the Holy Spirit, and when we love him, when we believe in him, then we are eager for the means of grace, just the ordinary means of grace, those foolish things which are so despicable in the eyes of worldly-minded people, but which are so precious for the saints. We're eager for the word preached. We're eager for the sacrament of baptism and Holy Supper. We're eager for times of prayer, individual, and with our husband or wife, and with our children and parents, and with fellow believers. And we're eager for for Bible reading and for Bible study. And we're eager for Christian conversation and mutual upbuilding. It's in all these things we experience the renewing power of the Holy Spirit. We experience his renewing power in our life and in in, in sanctifying our relationships. And we desire then that others who are broken would also experience that healing power of the Spirit. That new life which comes through the restoration and sanctification and healing which only he can bring. So that's what we believe, the creed. And the creed is focused on knowing the person and work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Faith is to know, to love, and to trust the triune God. Now the the Catechism asks a question in in, in Lord's Day 8, question answer 25, which is very important. In time of the Reformation, some people got carried away. They said, well, it's, it's, it's not what the church teaches, per se, in the first place. It's not the tradition of the magisterium. It's, it's sola scriptura. So if it's not in the Bible, I'm not going to believe it. And they made the mistake of thinking that sola scriptura means solo scriptura. In other words, that by the scripture alone means that the scripture is by itself and disconnected from any kind of official teaching of the church. And so they paged through their Bibles and they said, I I don't see the word Trinity. So it's not true. And the questioner here in question number 25 puts his finger on that question. He says, well, the Bible teaches there's only one God. Why are you talking about three persons? Is, Is this legit? And look at the answer. God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true and eternal God. Now that's something which we can't wrap our heads around. Why three persons in one being? In our experience, one being and one person to go together. But God is not someone who is limited to the realm of our experience, thankfully. Those he wouldn't be God. God is wholly 
other. He is in a different category altogether. If we can imagine somebody that's living in a two-dimensional universe, which is flat like a piece of paper, you can go up and down and left and right, that person may never be able to even imagine what a three-dimensional universe would be like. And in a similar way, because God is in a totally different category to us, we can't, there's nothing in all of creation that we can even compare him with. Any kind of illustration that you try to use to, to illustrate the Trinity usually ends up falling into some kind of heresy. There's nothing in creation to compare him with. But we do have God's revelation. We see the God the Father creates. We see that all of creation was created through the Son. And we see the Holy Spirit there in Genesis 1 hovering over the waters. And so therefore, in the first chapter of Genesis already, we get a, a, faint, a faint light, a faint indication of the fact that God is three in one. And then we look at what the Apostle says, the Apostle John. God is love. And as we reflect on that, we note that to love needs a subject and an object. And so before creation, when the world did not yet exist, God is love too, before. Before anything exists, God is love. He is love from all eternity. And how, how does that work? He is love because from all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit live in intimate communion. If you look at the, the gods of other religions, the false gods that people make up, you look at, for instance, the God of Islam. He is not love, but he is a God whose pure will, he demands, and he demands submission. He cannot love, because he does not live as God, who is three in one. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, and we get some glimpses in Ephesians chapter 1 of that, that glorious and that holy and that loving cooperation of three persons to create and to redeem us. We see... Paul just waxing so eloquent in, in, in this, this first chapter of Ephesians about how God did everything in love and in Christ before we even existed. God was loving us already. And we get kind of a, a faint idea in this chapter and other parts of the scriptures about the covenant of redemption that before the world was created, God in the Holy Trinity, he covenanted with himself that he, God the Father, would elect his church in Christ, that he would send his Son as the Redeemer to save his people and restore creation, that Christ the Son, that the Son of God accepted to be sent, and that, he, that they covenanted together, that he would receive the right to pour out the Holy Spirit on his church. And the Holy Spirit then applies the benefits we have in Christ. He regenerates and he sanctifies when you read the language of Paul here in Ephesians, 
we get a little glimpse behind the curtain of eternity. We see God working all things before time begins. Then we note that the Trinity is not a, a dry and, and dusty and theological invention dreamed up in an ivory tower. The Trinity is a doctrine which the church has, has focused more and more and has understood better and better through centuries of reading and studying and discussing the scriptures. The more we read the scriptures, the more we know God's self-revelation in Christ and the pages of the scriptures, the more we come to perceive the truth that God is three in one. Now, it's true that as we begin our reading of the scriptures, what first comes to the forefront is the oneness. As we read through the Old Testament, it becomes very clear. There is, there's one God, there's no other God, no one like him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Isaiah, the Lord says through the prophet, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's just one God. There are multitudes of verses which speak the same thing. So the Old Testament is very clear. God is one. And at the same time, in the Old Testament, there are already some hints. Not only the unity of God, but also the diversity within that unity. It's kind of like, as B.B. Warfield once used an example, in the Old Testament, you're in this room filled with all kinds of gold and silver and precious things, and there's a little candle burning, so you you can just make out some reflections and you can figure out there's a lot of wealth, there's a lot of beauty in this room, but you can't see it clearly. And then when the New Testament comes, somebody turns the lights on and you can see it all so much more clearly. And so we see some faint reflections in the Old Testament. We see, as we already mentioned, God creating, but, but, but he creates through the word and, and the Holy Spirit is present hovering over the creation. And he says, let us make man. And that's a little, little hint of Something going on here. And already in the Old Testament, even though God is presented as creator, and in Psalm 104 we read about the, the Spirit creating life and the Spirit renewing the face of the ground, so the Spirit also having a role in creation. And then in the New Testament it becomes even clearer because in Colossians, Paul says, well, because by the Lord Jesus Christ all things were created. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what in the Old Testament we learn that God is the creator, that same thing is applied to the Son in the New Testament. And then we going back to the Old Testament, we, we, see, we sometimes meet the angel of the Lord, and, and we notice a faint difference, because some angels, when, when you fall down and worship them, they say, whoa, stop. You know, I'm just an angel. Stand up. Don't worship me. But the angel of the Lord, when he's worshipped, he accepts it as his due. And we see, most likely, the Son of God, before he was incarnate as the Lord Jesus Christ, in the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And then we read in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit, and we read in Isaiah that they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And we think about what that means. They grieved his Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit a thing? Can you grieve a piano? 
Can you grieve a bench? You can't grieve a thing. Is the Holy Spirit some kind of a a force? Well, can you grieve electricity? Can you grieve magnetism? You can only grieve a person. And so even there, in the Old Testament, in very faint outlines, we see already the scriptures speaking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as persons who are the one true God. When we come to the New Testament, the lights go on, and the faint reflections become very clear, because what is attributed to God is attributed to the Son, is attributed to the Spirit. One example is in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The scripture doesn't make any difference. Sometimes the scripture says, God raised him up. Another time the scripture says, Jesus laid down his life, and Jesus took up his life again. So Jesus rose in his own power. And then at other times, the scripture says that he was raised to the power of the Holy Spirit. So there, scripture, which says that there's only one God, attributes the work of God to Father and to Son and to Holy Spirit as distinct persons. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 45, the the prophet says, uh, that God, God says through the prophet, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. That there was none like him, that he's the only one. And then we come to the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2, and Paul uses those exact same words to say that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. The very words that you apply to the Father as God are applied to the Son as God. We go to Ananias and Sapphira. They're in Acts chapter 5. And you know what happened with Ananias and Sapphira? They, they lied to the apostle, and the apostle said, well, you haven't lied to me. You have lied to the Spirit. And then just a few words later, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. You've lied to the Spirit. Can you lie? Can you tell an untruth to a thing? Well, that's not really that important, is it? Can you lie to a power, like electricity or magnetism? No, you can only lie to a person. And in Acts chapter 5, we read that that person is God himself. Then, of course, there's the very well-known scripture in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Making it very clear that there are two distinct persons here, God the Father and God the Son, and that they both are the one true and eternal God. We come to Pentecost. And just like in the Old Testament, when the, when the tabernacle was finished or when the temple was finished, then the glory of God descended in a cloud upon that finally finished uh, temple or tabernacle. At Pentecost, the glory of God fills the New Testament church, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the very presence of God living in the midst of his people. So these are just a few examples, but the more we study the scripture, the more that we read the scripture prayerfully, the more we learn about the glorious God who is one God and who is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In one glorious oneness, God in three persons, he loves and he elects, he creates, he redeems, he regenerates, he renews, and he sanctifies. And he does this sovereignly, and he ordains all of this for his glory. That's what it's all for. 
Glory to God. Glory to the Father. Glory to the Son. Glory to the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? Three times in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 6. We'll start in verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Glory to the Father. Then in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Glory to the Son. And then verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Glory to the Spirit. What was very faint in the Old Testament is is a lot clearer in the New And in a similar way, what is a very faint idea for us today of the glory of the one true and eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have such a weak picture of it. We have such a weak understanding and experience of it. And just like from Old Testament to New Testament, somebody turned on the lights. So there is a difference between what we now understand and what we will then perceive. Because the day will come when our faith will become sight. The day will come when we will join with the heavenly beings who never tire of singing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. And if sin is falling short of the glory of God, then faith, is falling down before the glory of God. Faith is falling headlong into the glory of God. That's where we're headed. We're headed for that day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, when we will live and breathe and swim in the infinite ocean of the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When the slightest thought, the slightest, the smallest word, and the most minimal act will be pure glory to God. That's where we're headed. That's who we believe. That's what we were made for. And so let's start practicing for that day. Amen.